Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Hello and welcome to this week's How To Academy podcast. Our guest is the psychiatrist Ian McGilchrist, whose 2010 book, The Master and His Emissary, blends history, neuroscience and philosophy to tell a powerful new story about how our minds make sense of reality. Ian's ideas will resonate with anyone searching for happiness, meaning and understanding in the modern world which is to say, with all of us. He spoke to the science filmmaker David Malone in a live stream event last year. Enjoy the interview. Welcome to the How To Academy. Um, my name's David Malone, and it's my very great pleasure to interview Ian McGilchrist, the author of The Master and His Emissary, which I think it's fair to say, Ian, caused something of a storm, did it not? Uh, well... Well, it, it's it's gathered a bit of, it's like a rolling wave. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with why you wrote it, because it, it took you 14 years. That's an awful chunk of someone's life to devote to a project when you, you were, you know, you had a full-time job. What were you trying to solve? What was it you were trying to do? Well, it goes back a bit to my pre-medical career when I was at Oxford teaching English. Um, and I was always interested in philosophy. That was what I was originally going to be reading. But I had to do it with politics and economics. I didn't want to do that. But um, I wrote a book about the problems with writing criticism, what it does to literature. And if I explain very briefly what that is, it'll set the rest in context. In a nutshell, I wrote a book called Against Criticism. And my problem in a sentence was that people in the past had gone to trouble to create something that was completely unique, was implicit in the words. It wasn't something that could be spelt out because it, like a joke, it would just disappear if you did. And it was embodied. It wasn't just an intellectual message. It had physical effects on you and emotional impact on you. And we came along in our seminar rooms in Oxford and turned this unique, implicit, embodied thing into something that was general explicit and basically abstract. And it seemed to me that there was a problem here because the context had changed and with it, the whole meaning of the work of art. So we thought we were examining it, but we weren't. We were examining a very different representation of it. Now cut to, I got interested in the mind-body at this point and so did a lot of philosophy on that. But I found basically that the philosophers were just all too disembodied in their approach to it. And I thought I'd better have a more embodied approach. And that was to study medicine and get into the area of overlap, something like Oliver Sacks, between neurology and psychiatry. So again, cut forward. I did six years of training. I got to the Maudsley Hospital um, after doing a, a bit of neurology and neurosurgery. And then I, at that hospital, I got very interested in things that were uh, to do with the question of the difference between the right and the left side of the brain. Right. And um, 
at the time, it was considered a complete no-no uh, because, it, you know, people had, uh, it had been of interest in the 60s and 70s after the first split brain operations, but then it had turned into a kind of pop psychology topic and everyone had said, well, all the things we used to say are not true. It's not true that, you know, there's language in one hemisphere and emotion in the other and that. They all do everything. But I was still intrigued by it. And they all said, look, don't, don't investigate this. Please don't investigate it because it'll be career death. However, one day I saw a poster for a lecture by a colleague, John Cutting, who just published a book called Right Cerebral Hemisphere and Psychiatric Disorders. And I almost didn't go to it. It was a life-changing event for me. And I almost thought, no, I'm going to sit and read one of the journals and have a cup of tea. And in fact, I went to the talk and I heard some staggeringly interesting things from this man. He'd spent 20 years sitting at the bedside of people who'd had right hemisphere strokes. And what he discovered or tumors or whatever, damage to the right hemisphere. Mm. And what he discovered was that whereas when you have a left hemisphere stroke, it's very obvious, uh, it affects your right hand, which for most people is quite important, and it usually affects speech. If you have right hemisphere damage, it's not that you can't grapple with the world, manipulate it by talking about it, instructing it and grabbing it, but you just don't understand it. So what he was explaining was that the grounds of the understanding of the world, giving it meaning, comes largely from the right hemisphere. He didn't put it in those terms, but that's what I've come to understand over the last two or three decades. When you say you know, embodied, when you started talking about something embodied, and did you mean sort of like there's a poem or a painting, and there it is in its wholeness, and then the academics come along and they sort of when they say, well, we're going to understand it, we're going to analyze it, it sounds as, as if you were saying that they, in their effort to analyze it, they sort of picked it apart, they dissected and killed it. Is that what you mean? Yes. Okay. That, that is partly what I mean. When I said embodied, I meant two things, really. One was that um, it just there as it was, that you couldn't improve it, you couldn't paraphrase it, you couldn't somehow substitute a piece of text for that poem, for that piece of music, for that painting, whatever it might be. Mm. So it just stood where it was and expressed itself the best that it could be. So in that sense, it was embodied in, in, its, in its embodiment as a being that has a relationship with you as an embodied being. It wasn't just a message in my head. It was another resonant being in the world. And I resonated with it and it resonated with me because I believe that everything actually that's another story has a kind of reverberative effect nothing is one way in this world and the other thing was that literally it affects your body so you're reading a poem by Wordsworth and when you come to see it you can feel it if you become aware of it that the movement of the verse is actually affecting your breathing your heart rate your blood pressure can make your hair stand on end can make tears come to your eyes and you can feel the muscles in your limbs contracting and relaxing in rhythm with whatever you're hearing. So it's very an embodied experience in that sense. So those were the things I meant. And did you and feel that that was being lost somehow in the, in the sort of... I felt that in the process of dissecting it, it purely cerebral message had been taken out of context. Right. So, you know, I mean, an example I give is there's this rather wonderful line... Is it in Macbeth? I can't remember, but somewhere in Shakespeare where somebody says there is no art to read the mind's construction in the face. And when you hear it in the theatre, a sort of chill runs down your back. But if you say, well, what does it mean? It means 
it's hard to tell what somebody's thinking by looking at them. You know, and suddenly that's completely gone. I mean, the whole thing has just been destroyed, you know? And uh, so there's meaning that is bound up in poetry because it's saying seven or eight things to you in different modalities. It's not just sending a message that a computer could understand by putting access to a lexicon together with a grammar. And it's all that, the implicit, the not said, the kind of hinted, the tone, very important, the tone and the rhyme and the rhythm and all the rest. All this was being kind of, as it were, cleaned out of the way in the effort to find out what this thing is. And I'm not, I must say that I'm not against the analysis of a poem. For example, in Against Criticism, I actually spent a lot of time with the concordance words, with looking at how often he used certain words, because I think it's very significant. But the problem with the process was that we thought we understood it by the analysis, whereas my view is the analysis adds a little bit of richness, but then we need to take that information back into a big picture in which it first has true meaning. And this is actually how we understand a communication. When you say something to me, Yes, the left hemisphere is very busy with sort of semantics and syntax, but actually it's the right hemisphere that understands what you're really getting at by the meaning of what you're uttering. Okay, so let, you brought up the, the two hemispheres because th- that, that's, that's what you started to look at, even, even though all your colleagues said, no, don't do it. It's professional death if you do, and you ignore them yeah. all on anyway. So, so let's talk about the core of, of what you wrote about in that book which is that there are i don't know how you put it there are the two hemispheres the left and the right but you're at pains to say that it's not that you know the left hemisphere does does accountancy and the right hemisphere does pretty paintings that's not what you're saying not at all so what tell us why are there two two minds and, and how would you describe the difference well i my theory and i don't know a better one that accounts for the the findings Um, And I should say what the findings are first at the outset, A, that the brain is divided at all. Why? A question I never heard asked in my training. The brain, after all, is just there to make connections. So why is it whoppingly divided? All neural systems are like this. Secondly, why is it asymmetrical? Because the world that it's there to interpret is not asymmetrical. And thirdly, why is the only band that connects the two hemispheres, well, not the only, but the major band that connects the two hemispheres a lot of its function in humans is inhibitory. It's, you know, it, it, some of it obviously is giving information, exchange of information, but a lot of it is saying, you keep out of this, I'm dealing with it. So it seemed on the face of it, there was something different going on here. And when you do neurology and you look at patients, you can see that, you know, if you have a, um, a, a lesion in the brain in one place and you have another patient with a lesion in the brain in the exact mirror image place, the things they experience are wholly different. So the idea that there are no significant differences is just a non-starter. So I wanted to know, well, what are they? And the theory that I think helps to explain this, and as I say, I don't know a better one, is that all living creatures have to work out how to juggle two, on the face of it, completely contrary tasks and at the same time. One is to pay very narrowly focused attention to something that they want to get get that seed, get that rabbit, pick up that twig in order to build a nest, feed, all the usual kind of business of just staying alive. But if that's the only kind of attention, that very precisely targeted attention to one detail, and and it's really about three degrees of the arc of attention, 
when that's going on, anything else could be happening all around you. You, you don't see the predator. You don't see your mates who are waiting you know, to be fed and, and all the rest. So in fact, it, we, we're all of us, and this goes right the way back to the most ancient neural network we know, 700 million years old in a sea anemone, which still lives off the Isle of Wight. Um, as I say, it's probably around the average age of the Isle of Wight inhabitant. And it, it, <laughs> it has this asymmetrical network. So there's something fundamental here, and it's just not good enough to say, oh, it doesn't mean anything. And I got my, my clue to what the difference was when I heard John Cutting say three things that rang a bell with what I'd just been saying about embodiment, implicitness, and uniqueness, which was that the right hemisphere understands the unique. The left doesn't discriminate so well, it lumps things in categories. That's one. The right hemisphere understands implicit meaning. That's to say all the things that are going on, your posture, your, your facial expressions, the tone of your voice, all the things that you're deliberately not saying as well as the things you are saying, all, all that richness. The left hemisphere is more like a machine. It goes, I see, he says this. In my book, it says that means X. And the other thing is the connection with the body. The left hemisphere is simply more abstracted. It takes things out of context. And one of those contexts is the human body. The right hemisphere just has more profuse connections with the autonomic nervous system, with the place in the brain, the cortex, part of the cortex where the cognitive and emotional brain come together. And, and therefore to embodiment, and it also has the body image in it. So these three differences, I suddenly realized, well, of course, why did it take me so long to write that book? And it's so difficult to articulate, because the things I wanted to say were the things that the right hemisphere understood, but I had to say them with my left hemisphere, which alone has speech. My right hemisphere can't talk, it's gagged, but it's saying, there's more there than you're noticing, if you like. That's very interesting. Um, so you mentioned it in passing. The Presumably both hemispheres understand language, but are you saying it's only the left hemisphere that has control over saying something? Speech is a different thing from language. Yes. Language is contributed quite widely in all people from both hemispheres. But for most right-handers, 97% of them, speech is in the left hemisphere. End of story. Right. And even in left-handers, 60% is in the left hemisphere. But speech is one of those things that is... It can be relocated, but it's a hard one to do. Whereas the normal functioning of language understanding goes on in both hemispheres. Actually, ah, both okay. have... So, so both, both, sides, both hemispheres are understanding, but only the left hemisphere has the microphone. <laughs> yes, and more than that, the right hemisphere is much better at understanding. The left hemisphere is much better at procedure. And this is true in mathematics, too. The left hand is very good at doing procedures, but the understanding of what you're actually doing in mathematics is better understood in the right hemisphere. And the same is true of language. So it's got a sophisticated rule book, and it says the procedures are, and I interpret it like this. And the right hemisphere says, yes, but actually on this occasion, it means the exact opposite because he's being ironic. You see what I mean? So, so I, is, I, it, I hate is it fair to say the left hemisphere is a little more literal-minded? It certainly is. That is one of the distinctions, yes. Mm. And that is not a small thing because, and I, you know, this is a, a, an argued about area, but it seems to me pretty clear from a mass of research that the left hemisphere is not so good as the right at understanding metaphor, unless it's a cliche. You say, oh, babies are angels. The left hemisphere is fine with that. But if you say a cloud is a pregnant ghost, the left hemisphere is like, can't find that. 
Um, so, so metaphor is really what the right hemisphere is much better at understanding. Now, listen, all our meaning is actually metaphorical. You know, this is something that's been well written about principally by Lakoff and Johnson over the years, but basically all meaning comes from a metaphor of something embodied that we do. And even scientific language and philosophical language is actually highly reliant on metaphor. You know, even if I say, if I say um, immaterial, well, materia is from originally mater, the mother, and it then came to mean wood. So you're starting from things that are very metaphorical, and then you're getting into an abstract concept. And all our language is like this when you break it down. Abstract. Means Let me, can I just ask you away. a couple more things about this left and right? You said that the right is, has got more connections with your emotions and with the body. Does it have more connections with the outside world, or is that the left hemisphere? No, it, it, you're right. It is the right hemisphere. And, of course, both hemispheres are involved in perceiving. Ridiculous to suggest they're not. Hmm. But when it comes to making sense of the world, the left hemisphere tends to rely on its theory. So it has a theory, which it's developed, and it wants the things to be consistent with the theory. And if they're not consistent with the theory, it either literally doesn't seem to see them, or if it sees them, it ignores them or denies them. Whereas the right hemisphere is what Ramachandran calls the devil's advocate. It's the one that's actually looking for, possibly this is not like that. And so the way I think of it is that the right hemisphere is saying, well, let me check that by looking out the window and seeing if that really is the case. It may say so on this piece of paper, but that's not good enough for me. Right. Is that, is that related then to the, the, the famous experiments where someone had had a stroke in their right hemisphere, so they're relying very much on the left, and where they denied that their own arm was theirs. They're very, very striking. Yes, it's not even an experiment, really. I mean, it's a natural finding, which probably anyone trained in medicine will have seen at some stage in their training, which so is, you know... Just that... tell us about it. Okay, well, I mean, obviously when you've got um, a, a left hemisphere stroke, you can't move your right arm and all the rest. And if you ask people with a left hemisphere stroke, they're tearful and they know there's things wrong. But if you ask somebody with a right hemisphere stroke, you know, you, you come on the ward down in the morning, Mr. X came in in the night following a right hemisphere stroke and he's got a hemiplegia. So in other words, his left arm is not working. And you say, how are you? And he says, fine. You know, and you go, oh, that's great. Um, no problems, for example, moving your arm then. No, no, no. Your left arm too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, would you like to do it for me? And he goes sort of, yeah, there you are. And actually nothing moves. And if you grab hold of the arm and bring it round in front of him and say, move that, he says, oh, that's not my arm. That belongs to the chap in the bed over there. That's extraordinary. So, and these people are not, there hasn't been any mental impairment. These are... They're as good at no. everything they did in life as beforehand. There's just something weird going on. It's what happens when the right hemisphere is knocked out. And eventually, most people get back considerable part of this functioning. But that's just a very dramatic case of all the sorts of things that go missing, which are the sense of connectedness, the understanding of what another person is really thinking. Um, what we call theory of mind, understanding that what they're thinking or knowing may be different from what you're thinking or knowing. And classically, this is a thing that is not there in autism, but is there in the neurotypical population. That's a very big generalization, but classically that's the case. So 
being able to understand things, the meaning, the connection, seeing that everything is in a context. And when you take it out of its context, you don't understand it better. Having grasped it, typical left hemisphere thing, it controls the right hand that grasps. Having got hold of it, yanked it out of the context, taking the heart, ripping it out of the body, going, now, what is this lump of meat? You know, the best place to understand it is where it was in the context. <laughs> and so, you know, this, this is very important stuff. It, you, you are painting I mean, a picture of the left hemisphere as being the sort of the cartoon scientist. Yes, I very, very much dislike and normally reject the idea of the brain as a computer. But in one, because I don't believe it is at all like a computer, but in one sense, the left hemisphere is rather like your personal computer in that it can do certain procedures very well and much faster than you can. But you're the one that gathers the data and poses the problem. You give it to the left hemisphere and it goes, oh, good, more of that. We do spew out the data. But it doesn't actually understand what the data mean. You, like taking your data from the computer, interpret it again in the real world out of which your question arose. So in that sense, the left hemisphere is kind of, has a kind of mechanical smartness, but it doesn't have true insight, imagination, understanding all the things that are so important in a human and can't really be put into an algorithm. Can we talk about the relationship? Because we're talking about the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere and then, and then the person. What do you see as the relationship? Are there two different consciousnesses inside a person's head, like two sort of badly conjoined twins who spend their time <laughs> fretting? What's the relationship between me and the two hemispheres? It's an awfully good question. And of course, as you, you are probably aware, people have taken different points of view about this. <laughs> Obviously, when, you, when you're getting on with the business of life, you're not aware that different areas of your consciousness are taking in a different version of the world. Perhaps I should just gloss that phrase. You see, the point about attention that I referred to earlier, that you have this piecemeal, fragmented, very narrow attention, you have this very broad vigilant, sustained attention, is that they yield a different version of the world. Right. So actually in a different experiential world, one is mysteriously made up of bits that don't seem to relate. You've got to work out how to put them together. You're not really in relation with it. It's like an object that you're fiddling with or examining in your lab. Whereas for the right hemisphere, you've got a world that is already pregnant with meaning and understanding because it's the basis of your experience and and it carries all that with it. So as far as whether there are two consciousnesses, some people have said there are, but in ordinary circumstances, there's not. There's one seamless consciousness that I have, but it becomes obvious as soon as you knock one out and you can experimentally knock a hemisphere out for 15, 20 minutes. When you do that, it's quite clear that the person doesn't lose consciousness. Half their brain is switched off, but they've still got consciousness. And that consciousness is significantly different if it's in the left or the right hemisphere. And you can get people to do experiments like draw things, talk about themselves, the left hemisphere, the right hemisphere. And there are reliable, considerable differences. So we don't notice that they're different because they're blended below the level of awareness as we lead our lives headlong. But if experimentally or through an accident of nature, one of them gets knocked out, then you suddenly realize there are two here. And after the first split brain operations, which were done in the 60s in California to relieve intractable epilepsy, and it was a very successful procedure, it enabled people to examine 
the two hemispheres. And when they were first severed, they were in conflict with one another. You know, one of them would, one of them would take money out of the pocket, and the other one would take it back and put it back in the pocket. Or the woman went to the cupboard to get out a dress. The other hand takes it, puts it back, and takes out a different one. So life was quite complex for the first few weeks and months. But after a while, again, the human being as a whole takes over, and uh, you know, it, it all gets, uh, as it were reunified and the way i look at it is that it's not that conscious there's a sort of question in science which is how is it all brought together how is consciousness unified and my answer to that is it doesn't have to be unified consciousness is seamless but what happens in these very peculiar situations is that the as it were the flow the united flow is like a river that goes round an island and then it meets again after the island and carries on and if you sample it on either side of the island you think oh there's two flows here but actually they're all part of one flow right so that's the image the, the theory you have a theory of mind and it sounds like some people could be more left hemisphere and some more right i mean we've obviously got all of us got both but some people, I, you, I suppose, I mean, I think I've worked for the left hemisphere from your description. I've definitely worked for a few left hemispheres in my time. Is, it, how, is that relationship always been the same? In, is it the same in every culture or, or has it changed? Because your well, description of the left hemisphere sounds uncannily like parts of our present culture, which are problematic. <laughs> that, that's right. And they don't tend to be substantive parts of other cultures. Um, what, what got me going, apart from John Cutting's fantastic research, and I joined him and we did some research together on hemisphere differences, but the other real influence on me was the uh, American psychologist Louis Sass, S-A-S-S, at um, Rutgers, who um, around the time I was beginning to formulate my ideas, uh, published a book called Madness and Modernism. I think it's subtitled Insanity in the Light of Modern Art, Literature and Thought. And his, uh, it's a long book, but it's a beautifully written book. And, you know, anyone who hasn't read it, treat yourself to it. Madness and Modernism. In it, his overall thesis is to take 30, perhaps 20, 30 phenomena that are typical of schizophrenia and then show that they're also typical of modern culture. Now, it's very convincing and he knows his stuff. So you can't really deny that there's something there. But it's very unlikely that we've all got schizophrenia. In fact, it's impossible. So the interesting thing to me is that when people have schizophrenia, they behave very like they've had a right hemisphere stroke. They, they're as good as exaggerated left hemisphere overdrive. And I think what Sass was pointing to was not schizophrenia, but left hemisphere overdrive relying too much on a certain really very simplistic mechanistic reductionist analytic way of viewing the world and not paying attention to what this in a way much more hard to articulate view of the world is in which things are seamlessly connected nothing is ever completely divorced from anything else in which things are flowing and changing all the time they can't be pinned down and they can't be just isolated and put into boxes and in which something is living and has qualities and uniqueness whereas in the left hemisphere this is all as in some sort of you know high functioning bureaucracy there are little bureaus and little categories of people of, who fill in a p37 and a p92 and you know, that, that's a little bit of it you know caricature but th that's the sort of way the left hemisphere tends to view the same thing that the right hemisphere sees as living complex and and uh, not to be reduced in this way
Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook and audio. Is there some sense in which our sort of very scientific culture has, it sounds like our, our, our scientific culture is, to use your terminology, much more left hemisphere. So it, it's, it's, it's done splendid things. I mean, you know, builds better bridges. <laughs> is it your feeling that, there's a, that we need to address the balance between the two sides? Well, yes, I w- there is a balance that needs to be redressed. Absolutely. That's between the left and the right hemisphere. Partly because, you know, for reasons I could expand on if you want, but it'll take a while. But the left hemisphere has evolved into something that is very efficient at theorizing, doing projections, plans and maps. But is not very good on what is the reality that is now being mapped. So it's actually not going to be more reliable. That's not its job. Its job is for the right hemisphere to say, what would happen if we did this? What would it look like? And overlay it with a map. But if you start believing the map is the world, mm-hmm. well, not only is a map very, very much simpler than the world, that's why it's helpful, actually. It'd be no good if it was as complex as the world it was mapping. But you've also just missed out on most of what the brain needs to be understanding. So science is a very interesting case because I've looked into this in writing the book I'm doing at the moment. And it's absolutely clear that science and mathematics depend to a very um, high degree on being able to think in images, to see analogies, to allow things to remain uncertain until an intuition comes to you that gives what, what's called a gestalt, an overall form that makes sense of things. Mm-hmm. And if you hear the accounts of pretty much any great mathematician or scientist, they didn't follow the scientific method. As George Gaylord Simpson says, who was one of the founders of the so-called modern synthesis, which is the kind of mainstream view of genetics, hardly any great scientist ever followed the scientific method. But you see, the trouble is that now the way it's taught and the way it's done in enormous scientific hen houses and industrial factories of science is it's all split up into little bits. People who work away on a tiny fragment and they do it entirely linearly. And they have to, as it were, be able to say at the outset what it is they're going to find before they start or they won't really get funding. And all this is actually hostile to the life of the mind. Science is an adventure. Science is imaginative. That's why I love it. In fact, uh, you know, until I got to university, I was very, very keen to do science. And then I realized, actually, there's other very important things as well. But, you know, having been there again in science, I can say that Really, the interesting stuff is to do with, yes, you have to be careful. You have to, be, you have to rely a lot on empirical data. But that's exactly what the left hemisphere doesn't do. If it has data that it doesn't like because they don't fit the paradigm, it just goes, must be wrong. They must have cheated on the experiment. The phenomenon doesn't exist. Can't do because it says in my book, it's like this. Now, that's left hemisphere, as it were, slant on science. Mechanistic, stuck in set. Because one of the things about the left hemisphere is it's sticky. Once it gets hold of something, it doesn't want to let go of it. So it's very conventional. But again, 
most great scientists were actually mavericks in a way. They struck out on something else because they'd seen a discrepancy. There was something there that didn't fit. That's actually how we discovered, or how not we discovered, but how, as it were, Copernicus and so on discovered that probably we ro rotate around the sun. So it's the ability not to throw away the details. Obviously, you don't want to keep changing your theory with every detail that comes up because it may just be a, a one-off finding. But it's finding the balance. It's always finding the balance, always, between the analytic and the synthetic. And the um, synthetic is a technical term in philosophy, meaning the putting together, hmm. not artificial. Yeah. So we need the balance between these two, but they're not of equal value because... The way I see it is the right hemisphere has the first take on things before it's jumped to conclusions. The left hemisphere jumps to conclusions much more than the right hemisphere. So in some ways, it's much less reliable. Its judgments are not so good. They're hastier, they're cruder, and it gets angrier if it's challenged. And the right hemisphere often says, well, maybe I might not be right here. It's very happy with uncertainty and ambiguity, which is actually the way you make progress in art or science. So it has the first, as it were, preconceptual take and then immediately the left hemisphere goes i got it it's one of those and yes thanks for that that put that one there and it's pigeonholed everything and then what it should be doing is giving that back to the right hemisphere and the right hemisphere is saying oh i see what you've done with it but now that you've done that that's very helpful because i can put it together now you've unpacked it i can put it together into a new enriched whole so it always goes from the right to the left and back to the right mm. and what not happening in science, in politics, in the world we live in in general, is that three-part process. We get as far as the second stage where we've broken everything up and we go, well, search me. doesn't seem to have any meaning. doesn't seem to have any purpose. It's just a lot of little bits. I mean, it's, we're nothing more than a few molecules in a, you know, swimming about in a soup. So that, that is, that's where you end up, I'm afraid, um, because and get this, the right hemisphere is much more critical for intelligence than the left hemisphere. People might think, oh, I've heard the right hemisphere is creative, but the left hemisphere must be very intelligent because it does all that analysis. It actually does all that analysis because it's not terribly bright, but it's very good at doing certain procedures. So if you actually look at brain scans, this has been done on about 130 patients who had a pre-morbid IQ test, i.e. before they had their stroke, they had an IQ test. And then they have an IQ test after their stroke. In the cases where there was a substantial loss of IQ, practically all the cases, the stroke was in the right hemisphere. When you say yeah. it's got to be this three parts, so that it goes from the right, yeah. goes it to the left, the left unpacks it and sort of does a lot of analysis and should send it back. Yeah. But you said it should. It's suggesting that you think it's not. <laughs> why, why not? Is there something about the, le the left hemisphere which means that it doesn't? Well, I think there are a lot of things about why it doesn't happen. I mean, the image in the title of my book, The Master and His Emissary, is that the emissary is somebody who is sent to do administrative business on behalf of a master that has a wise overview and knows that he shouldn't get involved in that detail or he won't be able to keep the wise overview. But the point of the emissary is to come back and report to the master. Without doing that, the whole exercise is in vain. But the trouble is that the problem with the left hemisphere is that because it only sees things inside a kind of hermetically sealed <laughs> container 
in which all its ideas are nicely organized, it doesn't know what it is it doesn't know. That is the crucial problem, the unknown unknowns. So if you don't know what it is you're missing, then you don't look for it. That's number one. Number two is, if you think in this way, for a while, things seem to be rather good, because the left hemisphere is the one that enables you to grab, enables you to administrate, to engineer, to mine, to take, to build what you want. But it has no understanding of what all this actually adds up to. So for a while, it makes you high and mighty, makes you powerful, makes you rich. And I think this has happened in the West three times, and that's the second half of my book. Once in Greece, again in Rome, in the end of the Roman Empire, and I think it's happening now. The, the, the left hemisphere has, for, some, for its own reasons, decided not to pay much attention to the right hemisphere. I mean, there was that theory, wasn't there? I, I remember reading it where people actually said, oh, the right hemisphere, nothing happens in there. It's just a spare tire. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> and that sounds like something the left hemisphere would say. Well, it's what I call left hemisphere chauvinism. You leave me the, to this, you leave this to me, you know. Don't worry your pretty head. I've got it all sorted out. But it's, that's not the case. So, yeah, I think the reason it has happened and tends to happen, in fact, in all civilizations is that they overreach themselves. They, they, get, they get flabby and soft and, and want everything their way. They no longer make sacrifices. They no longer think in the broad term. They become monolithic. They become unimaginative and they exhaust the resources of the natural world. A wonderful book on this called Immoderate Greatness, um, which I very much recommend. Um, and a very short book, only 80 pages, but it shows how six factors have repeatedly seen for the end of a civilization. And each of them are the sort of things that the left hemisphere view on life would accelerate. So there's a kind of unholy sort of synthesis or synergy between something that grows into an empire and the work of the left hemisphere, and then it falls apart. And that's, that's oversimplifying a 300-page tract, but, you know, there we are. <laughs> then it, in, when you say they, they do these things, in a certain sense, it's a culture which has become enamored of the left hemisphere, where the left hemisphere and its view of the world has somehow shouted down the right hemisphere? Exactly, and a very, very good image. Because if you remember, the right hemisphere, first of all, knows so much that it's very, very hard to articulate using the left hemisphere's tools of, you know, serial sentences, which is why it takes me a long time to write my books, because <laughs> I'm trying to do the right hemisphere's work in the left hemisphere's terms. Um, and so, yes, it, it does shout it down. And it's, so, it's money for old rope, because if you take a purely mechanistic, materialistic view, it's so easy to go, oh, all these people who think it's more complex than that, they just haven't thought enough, you know. Yeah. If they really could think straight and weren't so muddle-headed, they'd realize that it's all perfectly simple. I can tell you what it is, you know. I've got, now, once you start knowing it all, um, well, not only are you a pain to everybody around you, but you'll also <laughs> stop doing good science or good philosophy or anything else. You talked about moments of intuition. Just briefly before we um, go to some there's a thousand questions, I'm afraid. We're going to be here all night. Um, <laughs> so, so, 
you, you talked about intuition. I mean, um, intuition is one of those words which um, a lot of, particularly AI scientists, they don't like as if it doesn't really exist. It's like the tooth fairy. Oh, yeah. Do you think intuition is a real thing and that the, 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 the right hemisphere, at least, does, has intuition? But both, both hemispheres are capable of it, but it does depend, like most useful things, on, <laughs> on the right hemisphere. It's one of the areas of my book is I look at the, the legitimate claims of reason and why it's valuable and what its limits are. The legitimate claims of intuition uh, and, uh, and what its uh, values are and what, what its limitations are, and the same for imagination and for science. So I look at these four paths, really, if you like, that all need to be brought into operation if we're really going to help one another understand things. But unfortunately, usually it's no more than one or two of these things that are brought in. And at the moment, because it doesn't compute, intuition and imagination gets a sort of, uh, you know, a bad publicity. And scientists are very keen. It's quite funny, actually, to watch them um, going through the motions of trying to discredit them. But unfortunately, science uh, doesn't stop just because people don't like what it finds. And there's a massive information now on how very important it is, which a lot of people in the past, before the science was, was done, could have told you was the case. But it's always very helpful to have the science um, showing you the cold facts. I'm going to go to some of the questions. Um, there's one from um, Lucy. She said, do you think that this, your theory, is why there are all the problems with AI, that they can't translate the right brain into logic? Well, I think, I think that is, yes, I mean, broadly, I do think that is, is a problem. I should think AI people would say that they can quite possibly simulate what goes on in the right hemisphere by doing millions and millions and millions of calculations. So a grand chess master actually only looks at about six possible things on the board and then moves on to the next table and so on. But the computer is just very, very fast. So it's not intelligent. It doesn't have any insight. It, let me have a, does that, have we had that one before? What does that tend to lead to? And, and so on. So it's looking at all, covering all the bases. And that's just a very long way around of doing it. It's like face recognition technology. You know, I can recognize your face, but it's nothing to do with measuring the, you know, the distance between your pupils and all that sort of thing. But then with facial recognition technology, it's more like that. So I, I think that is one of the problems, yes. Um, but even more is that it shouldn't be called intelligence. It just isn't intelligent. Mm. It's artificial stupidity that goes very, very, very fast and is therefore very useful, exactly like the left hemisphere. Very useful. Don't knock it. It's the, it's the servant, the emissary. And as long as it's happy to fulfill that role, it's fine. It's when it thinks it knows what's going on and it calls the shots. That's when things go badly wrong. It does suggest then, um, there's a question from Peony on this sort of, this topic, that if you can't put the right brain into an algorithm, would that have rather bad implications for artificial intelligence? I suppose it might we be in the situation where they can put the left hemisphere into, a, into a, an AI and then let that, that loose on the world, but without any right hemisphere at all. Well, I mean, certainly at the moment, that is very much what's happening. So we allow computers to make decisions about things. They should never be making decisions. They should only be offering data on which a human with the vastly more sophisticated range of things that can understand, feel, and experience 
um, makes the judgment based on you know some additional information that has been furnished by the computer. So I think that is a problem. And of course, it's not unbiased. So computers contain the biases of the people who built them. And we know about this internet search engines and so forth. Uh, one very amusing case was, comes from a, a friend of mine who was a brilliant naturalist. And um, she is dyslexic. And she asked Siri to, how do you spell Tiersel, which is the name for a male kite or falcon? And Siri said, what's all this about gender? <laughs> it shouldn't make any difference. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, that's, what, that's where we're going, into a sort of completely unsophisticated world in which all the decisions are made by a geek somewhere in Silicon Valley or China who put it into the machine yesterday. There's a question from someone who remains anonymous, basically saying, do you think the left hemisphere has taken control of the UK's educational system um, <laughs> with its sort of, you know, testing and... Um, yeah. And do you think this is having a... It's, and decreasing the arts is this going to have a bad effect on development of imagination empathy in children i know you're quite i, I very much believe that i i really couldn't couldn't add to that except you know to 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 flesh it out but basically i think that in a nutshell is right that we are thinking far too much in terms of narrow systems the putting of information into children rather than the training of a mind to think critically, to see both sides of a question, not to see in black and white terms, you know, to think flexibly, to think your way into a play, a, a poem, a novel, to do music. All these things are not add-ons. You know, there's a sort of feeling that the arts are very nice, but really it's all about sitting in Goldman Sachs making money. That's the real world. But that's not the real world. That's a fantasy abstraction. Even the money's abstract. And even the economists don't understand how it works, in which certain people enrich themselves at the expense of other people. But what's real is the thing they consider to be the entertainment they go to afterwards, when they go to the Royal Opera House and hear one of the most staggering things that they'll ever encounter in their life. You know, it's a very, very strange world. I'd just like to add, before you ask another question, I just want to say about the, the lady who asked the question about... Um, computers. The great thing to remember is exactly what I said, that they're very good servants. There's nothing wrong with them. They're not intelligent. They are just very, very helpful. And as long as we don't expect them to take over from us and do our jobs, as long as they stay as modestly effective tools that can speed things up for us, fine. But that would be the right hemisphere's take. The left hemisphere's take is, no, 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 I'm the master. And I think the AI people want their machines to be, you know, no, human beings are just failed machines, whereas machines are just incredibly unsophisticated representations of one aspect, of one part of the human brain. <laughs> Will asks, are there ways to hack one's balance between left and right hemisphere? Several people have asked this. It's, are there things yes. that you can do to, to redress this balance in yourself? Well, I think the first thing to do is to be aware of it. And I, I know that sounds a bit disappointing, but it is probably the most important thing. Because once you start to see it, a lot of people have written to me saying, after I've read your book, I mean, that's a very, very common thing. I see the whole world completely differently. So my reactions to everything are now different. So in fact, the book, sorry, this is not a sales pitch, but reading it and understanding it and feeling your way into it will automatically redress that balance in your mind. But there are, in a very kind of, you know, sticking plaster 
sense and things one can do. I mean, the important things would be to reform education, to stop constantly banging on about how we ought to be getting more like machines and starting thinking about how we can make better people rather than better machines. But certain things like mindfulness, I think, you know, mindfulness, as I know, is a bit of a cliche, but it's actually a very, you know, it's also a thousands of years old technique that has developed because it does help induce a state in which the right hemisphere's attention is on the world, non-judgmental, not trying to do something with it, articulate about it, but being there with it, which is the first step on actually understanding it and on being alive. You know, you can go from the cradle to the grave, obsessed by your schema of how things are, living entirely in your head, and never really have been there at all, which is pretty tragic, because we only get one crack at this, is my belief. Um, there's a question from Andrew and several people have asked this sort of thing saying look is there a relationship between this theory left and right and genderedness and between is there a difference between male and female and if there is does that say something to the, the idea that the world as it's currently constructed has been so largely built by men and not women small the question proper answer to that, <laughs> yes the proper answer is that it would take quite a while but I'll try and um, do the headlines there is no mileage whatever in the idea that the left hemisphere is male and the right hemisphere female. I know why people sometimes say that, but actually when you do neuropsychological profiles of men and women, never mind when you actually look at neuroanatomical, neurophysiological measures, they practically all show that where there's a difference, women rely more on their left hemisphere and men more on their right hemisphere. So I might as well just get rid of that one. And there's a lot more detail about that in the book that I'm writing. And don't shoot the pianist. You know, I mean, that just is where <laughs> what's true. Um, men and women's brains are different. Yep, no question about that. What that tells us, I don't know. I think the more interesting things is differences in psychology, which certainly do exist. And I don't like any kind of um, cut and dried view that, you know, the reason our civilization is bad is because of man. Uh, you could argue that the reason we have the civilization is because of a lot of extraordinarily talented men in the past who did also make sacrifices. So it, it's not just a simple story. However, at the moment, I do think that because women are just not so keen on the narrative, uh, the reductionist narrative, I think, um, and partly that's because often they, their emotional lives are somewhat richer than many men's. Men cut themselves off a lot from their emotions perhaps have to, you know, perhaps from the point of view of development, that has been one of the things that's happened. And women also, whether you like it or not, are more important in bringing up our young. So they're already very much embedded in a world that is not like that. So I think their point of view is enormously valuable at the moment. But please don't reduce it to it's all the fault of men or the left hemisphere is male and the right hemisphere is female. It just is not like that at all. Question from Annie. Um, is your view that we've become too much a world of specialists and that we, what we need are more polymaths who can see the context, the bigger picture? I suppose that gets back to education again. <laughs> Being somebody who is constantly chastised for sort of spanning different areas, I suppose I'm bound to say yes. And I do, I do think that's right. I mean, I think we need, as always, it's a balance. You need specialists. The world needs specialists. But as many people have pointed out, 
the knowledge that comes from specialists, like the knowledge that comes from consulting the left hemisphere, is only valuable once it's taken back into the big picture and enriches it. So really there is never, it should never stop at a specialism. And nobody should be so specialized that they don't really know about what's going on in the other silos around them. What's more, I think if people were fully educated, they wouldn't be able just to do a technical education. They would have to do some history, philosophy, literature, music, as well as, you know, in the past that was the case. Until, until probably the 50s, most scientists would have had a pretty all-round humanist education. But now we get people who have never actually had the benefit of that. And so the combination of that with explosion of knowledge um, greater desire to kind of get ahead in a very narrow field means that, yes, specialism is rife, and I'm not knocking it in itself, but it shouldn't be dominant, and it is now dominant. We do need polymaths, yes, very much so. Yes. Are there moral and ethical implications when considering the, the direction of a culture that's dominated by the left hemisphere? Definitely. Um, <laughs> I very strongly do believe that, yes. And um, there's some very interesting work being done by David Hecht at UCL, University College London, in which he has illuminated quite how much antisocial, psychopathic self-behavior tends to be more driven by the left hemisphere um, and more um, communitarian thinking, if you like, more um, selfless thinking. We need a balance, of course. We need competition and collaboration. That's how nature has worked well, and it wouldn't do well if it only had one or the other. We need both unification and division together. We need those two things to be unified, not separated. But yes, uh, there are moral implications because the left hemisphere is much more about grabbing and getting and about the ego, whereas the right hemisphere has a much better sense of the self, which is not the same thing. The ego is the sort of very much me against the rest of the world establishing myself as a power as a child but when you become a fully mature adult you should have a more of a sense of yourself which is not disjunct from society at large but emerges from society gets its meaning from society and gives back to society there's a question here which you can't possibly answer in the two minutes we have left but <laughs> how or why has the left brain been taking over I suppose it is. A, why, why has it done it? Why does it bother? The, the right brain hasn't taken over the world. No. Well, it, um, as you say, I can't quite do it in two minutes. But, um, <laughs> if you are, but I do do it very briefly and succinctly in the introduction to the revised edition of The Master and His Industry, which came out about a year ago. There was a new introduction by myself reflecting on things that have come up and things I would have stressed if I'd known about how they would be taken. And one of them is to answer that question. I think there are probably seven reasons, but a few of them I've already mentioned. One is that it's money for old rope. It's very easy. Another is it makes you, um, makes you rich and powerful. It's turned since the 18th century. It's turned the world that one would have gone to for a touchstone against which to test the ideas being given to you by the left hemisphere, the world that we live in, it's turned it into something much more like the left hemisphere's own interior world. It's projected it outwards onto the world. The world in which most urban people certainly live is very dominated by imagery and a style and a feel that comes from the left hemisphere. So there is no longer that balance available in life, which there always was until very recently, because 
it's only very recently that such an enormous amount of the world's population lives in an entirely urban setting. Well, it's got to remember that even, even Athens was not a very big place in, in the 6th century BC. It was tiny. Ian, um, Ian yeah. I'm sorry, we've run out of time. I wish you could carry on talking all evening. I would listen to you. <laughs> I just wanted to um, say thank you very much. Um, and uh, I wish we had more time. And um, I look forward very much to your next book. Hurry up and write it. Hurry up and get it finished. We're all waiting. I'm thank doing you. my best. Thank you so much, David. You were very good to talk to you. Thank you. This week's podcast starred Ian McGilchrist and was presented by David Malone. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Doughty. We've got a rich array of live stream events exploring neuroscience, psychology and well-being coming up in the next couple of months. And our guests include luminaries like Lisa Feldman Barrett and Daniel Levitin. If you enjoyed this episode, I urge you to take a peek at our website and find out more. Stay safe and well, and thanks for listening.